You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. Happy holidays, David. Happy holidays, Neil, and I hope you had some good ones. It is the season. Hopefully you're getting some time off, maybe relaxing, listening to some podcasts, or probably spending some time with friends and family. That's what it's all about, safely, of course, this year. And David, since we are family, let's spend some time together and record a podcast. Sure, we could do that. All right, then. I will ask the question that's in the title. Oh, brother, when art thou? You know, we're coming up on the new year, and that's got me thinking recently a little bit about beginnings and endings and especially about dates and the importance we attach to them or don't. So right now, it's October 22nd, 1844. And across northeastern North America, from New York to Toronto, groups of people have gathered, many of them dressed unusually, in white robes. As the day wears on, many of the groups simply quietly disperse. But there are instances of wild outbursts of all kinds, from celebrations to mob violence, as people try and cope with both confusion and disappointment. Confusion and disappointment does not sound like a great day on October 22nd, 1844. David, what's so special about this date? Well, that depends on who you are. But if you're a Millerite, one of the followers, the believers who have listened to the famous preacher William Miller and believe that he is divinely inspired that he is passing on the word of God, then you knew, coming up to October 22nd, 1844, that this was the end of the world. This was the day of judgment. Well, that's good news for the Millerites, David. Always good to have a heads up on when the day of judgment is going to happen. But I have a feeling they may have been led astray. Who was William Miller, David? And why did he believe that this was going to be the judgment day? All right. So we're going to need to discuss the social situation in upstate New York, Vermont, and northeastern North America more broadly in the 1830s and 1840s. But of course, to get there, we've got to move back even earlier. So let's start with William Miller as a young man in 1812. You may have heard, Neil, of the War of 1812. It took place in 1812, I know that much. So it was a war between the United States and Great Britain, and Canada, of course, was a colony of Great Britain at the time. So William Miller, living in New York, son of a prosperous family, a very conventional man for the time, joined up with the U.S. Army and became a recruiting officer and served from 1812 all the way till 1814, safely in rear zone posts, doing nothing particularly interesting from our point of view. But that didn't last quite till the end of the war, because the war did not necessarily progress to the advantage of the United States. There were setbacks. And with the British winning on the Canadian front, at least, 
1814, William Miller was amongst the many young U.S. officers who were called up to serve at Plattsburgh, the famous Battle of Plattsburgh, where George Prevost, the British Army's North American commander-in-chief, attempted to invade New York and was stopped by an outnumbered American force. And for William Miller in particular, this wasn't just an ordinary battle. This was a divine revelation. He felt for the first time in his life, he tells us in his memoirs, the hand of God moving in the world. He saw, he believed that the only way that this plucky band could have defeated a larger British army, not that much larger, but still larger, was if God himself was helping them. Well, certainly not the first nor the last soldier, David, to find God on the battlefield. But William Miller obviously took it farther than most as he started studying God and eventually becomes a prophet? Well, initially, immediately after the war, he actually goes into private business as a farmer and later a businessman because, you know, it's one thing to want to study God, but you've still got to eat. But as he started to succeed in the 1820s in his business, he went back to his beliefs. He wanted to become a preacher. He was a Baptist. His family was Baptist. And so he started intensively studying the Bible. He got into Bible prophecy. He believed that he could determine what God's message for the world was by studying the Bible very intensively and calculating. Calculating various things would reveal to him what God's plan was, what what was going to happen next. What were the sorts of calculations he would be doing around the Bible, David? I don't remember a lot of algebra questions in that. Well, for example, the most famous and most important of his calculations is about an offhanded comment in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it says that the temple of God will be cleansed for 2,300 days. Now, William Miller thought this was weird, and he thought it must be a secret sign. There was no point that God would include in the Bible just like a description of how they were going to clean the Jewish temple that they were actually building during the time of the book of Daniel was written, because that would be very boring and uninteresting. So instead, he was convinced that this must be a code. And after intensive study, he decided that 2,300 days must really mean 2,300 years. So all he needed to do was determine when the cleansing of the temple began, and he would know that something very significant would have to be happening precisely 2,300 years later. And David, did that math add up to 1844? Initially, it added up till 1843 after he decided on what he believed the beginning of the cleansing of the temple was. And in the early 1830s, actually, he wrote his first article in which he revealed to the world or any portion of the world which cared to listen that he believed that he had discovered this critical 
message hidden in the Bible. It sort of reminds me, David, of the QAnon movement today, like people thinking there are secret messages embedded all around the world and all these crazy things and they can just decipher them and figure out what's going to happen. So did people start to follow William Miller? Did they start to actually believe that he could decipher these hidden messages in the Bible? So here's where we need to move back to what was happening in the 1830s in upstate New York particularly. Historians call it the Second Great Awakening, which is a reference to Protestant churches in the U.S. undergoing massive popular movements. There was all over the place revival meetings, people coming together in big public spaces to reaffirm their commitment to Christianity and to God, to denounce their sins and publicly repent, and frequently to convert from one sect of Protestantism to another. It became really a hothouse atmosphere. One preacher referred to basically the entirety of upstate New York as the burnt-out district. He said they've had so many meetings where people lit their souls on fire that they're burnt out. They just can't keep this up. But he was wrong. Camp meetings became an extremely popular form of public religious devotion, and people would travel for miles to hear their favorite, most charismatic preachers come and speak and hold dramatic public conversions or reaffirmations of their faith together in a communal kind of atmosphere. So in some ways, things were well set up for William Miller to step in and be a preacher. The downside is, frankly, by most historical accounts, he wasn't very good at the whole public speaking portion of the job. Seems like quite the atmosphere, David. People just getting together to embrace these new religious ideas and metaphorically burn themselves or burn their souls. So this is the environment that William Miller finds himself in. It's a good opportunity for a would-be prophet preacher, but he's maybe not the best man for the job? Probably not the best man for the environment of the burned-out areas of these big camp revival meetings. But William Miller publishes his article first before he ever tries his hand as a public speaker. His first effort is a sober scholarly article that he does his best to send to serious religious scholars because he really thinks he's onto something. He's studying. And most serious religious theologians of the time just reject it out of hand. They've all seen many people try and find hidden messages in the Bible. But there's one man who happens to get his hand on this article, and his name is Joshua Hines. He lives in Boston. He's not a theologian or a scholar. He's a newspaper man, and he is absolutely convinced. All right, so this might be the opening that Miller needs. He has the press, a newspaper man, on his side. Does Hines use his paper, his platform, to put forth these ideas and get them out into the public sphere, David, beyond the scholarly side of things that Miller was approaching at the beginning? 
So Hines has dramatic plans. He reaches out and gets Miller's approval to work together. And he actually founds a new newspaper. He names it The Signs of the Times. Catchy name. With that catchy name, he sets out to sell across the United States, into the border to Canada, even across the ocean in England. He is distributing his newspaper as a for-profit business, but also as a for-a-profit, at least as far as Heinz is concerned. He really views Miller as a profit, and he wants it to spread the word, spread the message, and it does. People start to read it. They're impressed. There are converts who believe Miller right at the start, and there are more people coming. They start to recruit better public speakers. Joshua Landis will be the most famous of the Millerite public speakers, and a number of others who are good at running the camp revivals that William Miller wasn't very good at or successful at, so that they can do all of the traditional Protestant religious tactics to spread their message. So give us a sense, David, how big does this become? What is the reach of Millerism? Well, that, of course, is debated. There's no religion that hasn't claimed to have more adherents than some scholars, at least, believe they actually did. And conversely, I know of no case in history where the most conservative scholarly claims of a religion's numbers weren't disputed as too low by some of the faithful. But a commonly accepted number for how many Millerites there were, based largely on the circulation of the sign of the times, is around 50,000. And many scholars and religious studies believe that that might even be low, since not everyone who was a believer would be capable of or willing to pay for a subscription to the newspaper. But even if it was high, it's certainly in that ballpark. Roughly 50,000 true believers across northeastern North America. And what sort of effect does that have? What does that look like in practice? It varies depending on where you are. In the cities, the Millerites actually at various times make an effort to set up organizations to aid the poor and the sick to do good works because they believe that the day of judgment is coming on and they need to get some good works under their belt before they're judged. So that's what an ordinary city dweller of the time would have experienced of this movement. The flip side, of course, is that in rural areas, their revival meetings frequently draw in thousands of people, not all of them believers. This is great entertainment. If you're in the late 1830s in the northern United States or the southern portion of Canada, frankly, there's not a lot of rural entertainment. And a famous preacher coming to town, holding a big public meeting with everyone there, probably brings along a choir to do some hymns. That's gets people out. It's their famous defining element of the whole thing. All right, David, so we've got somewhere in the range of 50,000 Millerites. We've got this movement spreading, doing good works, putting on rallies. What are the central tenets here? Is there anything beyond the Judgment Day and that 
original calculation of William Miller? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, yes, definitely. Miller is a fervent Baptist himself with strong beliefs about how people should read the Bible and pray to God, many of which line up more or less with Baptist orthodoxy. But his followers are not necessarily always in agreement with his specific beliefs about how best to do everything. What they believe is his one most famous prophecy, that the world is going to end. But his followers themselves begin to develop into a very distinctive religious tradition as they develop their own beliefs. A particularly important one is the necessity of evangelization, the need to bring Christianity to all their neighbors, which obviously is particularly intense because they're working against a deadline and their deadline is getting closer and closer. So it's sort of a yes and no answer, I'm afraid. Yes, there are very distinctive elements to Millerite's practice of the faith, but no, they're not quite a sect in the technical Christian term. So David, you say this is all building towards that date, that judgment day, but you mentioned that Miller originally calculated it as 1843. Is that going to be an issue? So yes, as the day approaches in 1843, he'd initially expected some signs, not all of them are happening. And then the date actually passes, but Miller's already been downplaying a bit this 1843 date, so there's less dramatic public events of Millerites coming out, although there are a few. But shortly afterwards, shortly after the world hasn't ended, Miller puts out a new article where he says that he got his initial start date off by a year because he used his calculations based on the standard rabbinical Jewish timeline, but now he's decided that he thinks the Karaite Jewish religious timeline, which is slightly different, is actually the correct one, which is a weird thing that suddenly we're making judgments on different Jewish religious traditions. But anyway, so he announces that he was off by a year. It's going to be October 22nd, 1844, this time for absolutely definite. All right, David. So we have it. We have the judgment day. He's done the calculations. He's changed the calculations, but he's come up with judgment day, October 22nd, 1844. Take us to that day and what we know about it. Well, October 22nd, 1844, for most people, even in northeastern North America, is pretty normal. 50,000 people is a lot, but compared to the population of cities like Toronto and New York, it's not that many. Even if you see some weird people gathering in white robes, like, that's unusual, but you know, these things happen. There's always some kind of religious thing going on. And it's a quiet day. Apparently the weather was quite nice. Things move along a pace. It's really only if you were a Millerite or lived closely to the Millerites, or happened to be right by a Millerite gathering, that it becomes a very dramatic day. In the morning, of course, the faithful gather. 
Many of them have put on white robes in order to be prepared to ascend into heaven because that's going to happen any minute now. And there's some preaching frequently in the various groups where they've gathered or singing hymns. Again, a good proper way to prepare to meet the Lord. And then the day wears on and on and nothing too dramatic is happening. A few people had actually given away their lives' possessions because, of course, Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. So if you think you're going to heaven today, maybe getting rid of your riches is a good idea. Many of those people aren't happy as nothing is happening and suddenly they're asking themselves why they gave up worldly possessions. And even amongst members who'd made less dramatic personal sacrifices, there's still a real feeling of betrayal. Many of them feel like they look like fools to their neighbors and friends because, of course, they believed and now it's not happening. And so you get the first outbreaks of violence, sometimes from disillusioned Millerites, sometimes just from frustrated people who happen to be around them. Apparently a group of Millerites in Toronto get tarred and feathered because Torontonians find them blocking the streets, weeping and wailing to be very irritating. And as the day wears on into the evening and then into night, many people begin to face one of the most dramatic crises of faith that is well attested to in a relatively modern era as far as literacy and record keeping goes. So the world does not end, David. Either the calculation was wrong or it was never there to be made in the first place. But either way, October 22nd, 1844 is not the end of the world. It is not the judgment day. What is the fallout from all this, David? You mentioned what sort of started happening on the day. How does this all end and what happens to William Miller? So William Miller is fine on the day of. He only gathered with a small group of his most, of his closest friends, so... Nobody flips out and attacks him or anything. He actually goes into hiding for a brief period after the failed prediction, just in case anyone is particularly vengeful about this. But Smart planning. No one really goes after him, probably. And after a couple of years, he writes his memoirs, actually. And then in 1849, he dies because no one lives forever. And he was not a young man, even in 1844, so... Not a lot more to the story of William Miller in person. The Millerites, though, their crisis of faith will send them in multiple different directions. Some of them go back, go back to just whatever they were before in terms of religious faith and in terms of their lives. Others move on to pre-existing unusual Christian groups like the Shakers or the Quakers who get a lot of converts in the immediate aftermath since they have passionate Protestant beliefs but never bought into Miller's aura of prophecy, so it's attractive for some. One small group actually decides that they need to travel to Jerusalem, that that was what they did wrong on October 22nd, and they should have been in the Holy Land for the Holy Day. And uh, they do. Nothing too dramatic happens, but it's a hell of a journey to make from America in 
1844, but the two largest splinter factions that remain after the day, the former Millerites, many of them have found something in this faith, even if the core tenet, the prophecy, was not true, have found something and don't necessarily scatter, hold to their communal religious groups as they try and determine what they believe now and what they will do next. And the two largest of those groups will become the modern-day Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses, both of whom you may know as large evangelical Christian groups, and this is actually part of both of their foundations. So that's interesting. Very interesting, David, and all because of the calculations of a soldier who saw God on the battlefield years before. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And make sure you give the podcast a follow on social media. You can find us. Our handle is at when art thou. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. We are now on Pandora. So if you like to listen to your podcasts on Pandora, please give us a follow there. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Let us know if there's somewhere else you like to get your podcasts that you want to find us. We'll get there as well. David, we always like to end with a quiz. So I do have a quiz for you today. And as you mentioned at the beginning, we are coming up on a new year. I'm sure many people, just like the Millerites, would like to turn a corner this year at the end of 2020 on January 1st. So today we're going to do This Day in History with January 1st. Are you ready to go? All right, let's do this. It was the Julian calendar, David, that made January 1st the first day of the year. What year did that take effect? What year was January 1st the first day of? All right. So I know that so I know that the Julian calendar was named after Julius Caesar. So I'd imagine that it was sometime close to his lifetime that the calendar went into effect. David, we'll give you some leeway here. See if you can get kind of close because it's tough to pick the exact year. Ah, so I'll guess sometime around 100 years before Christ. You're not too far off, David. It was actually 45 BC was the year that by decree the Julian calendar came into effect and January 1st became the first day of the year. So let's move along to some other events that happened on January 1st. Jumping forward to 1801, Ceres, the largest and first known object in the asteroid belt, was discovered on January 1st, 1801 by who? Oh, man. Oh, I feel like I know this, but I don't know the name. It was an Italian astronomer, if I'm recalling correctly, religiously connected to the Catholic Church, but I really can't remember the name. David, that's really good. It was Italian priest, mathematician, and astronomer Giuseppe Piazzi who discovered Ceres in 1801. On January 1st, 1804, this country became the second independent country in North America. The second independent country in North America became independent in 1804. Of course, the United States of America were always already independent by then. I'm really not sure. I might guess Haiti. You're bang on, David. January 1st, 1804, Haiti was also the first black majority republic. 
On January 1st, 1898, the modern city of New York was formed when this borough became the fifth borough. I'll guess Brooklyn, since I know that that's a borough of New York City. Worth a guess, David. It was actually Staten Island, which became the fifth of the five boroughs. And finally, a January 1st tradition is the Rose Bowl, a football game. It was played for the first time ever in 1902 on January 1st and won by this school, the alma mater of football players Tom Brady and President Gerald Ford. That wouldn't be Notre Dame, would it? Good guess, David. That is a big school, but it was actually Michigan. Tom Brady was actually a backup when the Wolverines won the Rose Bowl nearly a century later in 1998. They won the first ever Rose Bowl. Of course, it's always played on January 1st. Whatever you're doing on January 1st this year, we hope you had a great holidays and we wish you the best for 2021. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening.